Well, for those of you who are visiting with us today, we are in a series through the New Testament book that's known as the Acts of the Apostles, and uh, we are in chapter 19 today. And would you stand with me again, if you're able, and let's read our scripture together today. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is God's word. You may be seated. The passage that we have arrived at in, as we've been working our way through the Acts of the Apostles is a critical one because it is a text on which one of the um, points of uh, demarcation in, in uh, various branches of, of Christianity um, depart. And uh, we need to understand what this text teaches, why it teaches it, and I uh, hope that you'll uh, apply your minds to these things this morning. In verse 1 of chapter 19, we read that Paul returned to Ephesus. I was thinking about my father's generation and uh, General MacArthur who said, I will return, and uh, I don't, I'm not sure he ever did. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger who said, I will be back. Uh, I don't know if he was either. But um, Paul said, had said, and you remember uh, in verses uh, 19 to 21 of chapter 18 last week, that Paul had been in, uh, in Ephesus and had promised to return. So there are two notable things that actually happen here in verse 1. The first is that he returns in fulfillment of that promise to the Jews. Uh, you'll recall if you heard last week's message that Ephesus was the first port of call on Paul's prior journey from Corinth back to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul lingered there in Ephesus for a short time, entering the synagogue as was always his pattern, as we've seen over and over again already. And there, and there he reasoned with the Jews, it says. And surprisingly, uh, he found a receptive audience among the Jews there. And uh, as, as was not the norm, they asked him to stay. Uh, but he declined, and when he left, he bid farewell to them and to Priscilla and Aquila and promised that he would return to them if it was God's will. 
Uh, from there, he had booked passage, as you recall, uh, to Caesarea in Israel. He went down through the Aegean Sea into the Mediterranean, eastward to Israel. Upon arriving there at the seaport at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem, uh, presumably to fulfill the vow that he had taken at Kenkrei, and uh, also says that he greeted the church there. And then from Jerusalem, he went north to his home base in Anti- uh, Syrian Antioch and the church there. And then far to the northwest again, into the heart of Asia Minor, uh, more modern-day Turkey, visiting the uh, uh, and strengthening the disciples in the churches that he and Silas and Timothy had previously planted in that region. And then here in verse 1, we find him traveling through the heart of that region and at last arriving back in Ephesus. And clearly his return to Ephesus proved to be, uh, as he had spoken, God's will. I've been impressed of late by the sheer distances that Paul traveled for the sake of the gospel. You know, you know that last book of the Bible that's called Maps? Um, it never looks like too terribly far that he traveled, right? But um, last week I mentioned that uh, the over 3,500 miles that Paul had traveled on his homeward journey back to Israel and then back up again into Galatia and Phrygia, and so now add to that number uh, about 600 or more miles and, and realize that this man had traveled well over 4,000 miles in, in just a few verses <laughs> in Scripture and had arrived um, full circle back almost to where he started. The, the second item of note in verse 1 is, of course, Paul's encounter with some disciples there in Ephesus. And uh, I want to look in verses 1 and 7 at Paul's uh, latter part of verse 1 and um, and then verse 7 about Paul's presupposition. It says, there he found some disciples, and then verse 7 says there were about 12 men in all, referring to them this morning as the Ephesian dozen. Luke doesn't inform us of, of where or how it was that Paul first met these 12 men, only that it was in Ephesus, and uh, that they were disciples, that they were students, that they were learners. And when you and I read in the pages of the New Testament uh, that anyone encountered some disciples, if no other information was provided, our, our first presupposition would usually be, wouldn't it, that they were Christian disciples. Uh, they were followers of Jesus. We would then expect uh, them to, to think and to speak and to act as Christian disciples do. Uh, and it would appear that Paul at first made the same presupposition. And then in verses 2 to 3, we get the sense that as Paul spent time with these 12 men, he must have been presented with some evidence that challenged that presupposition. And what that evidence was, specifically we're not told, but it, it, it's pretty clear that Paul's spiritual discernment kicked into gear, and it led him to begin to question their spiritual status. They seem to present themselves in some way, shape, or form as believers. Uh, They may have been kind of hanging out with the Christian community in Ephesus, and yet as Paul discerned that that something was off, something was missing, something was lacking in their spirituality, uh, a question began to form in his mind. Well, what is spiritual discernment? When we talk about discernment, what does that mean? The Bible teaches that the spiritual discernment is a capacity that is given by the Holy Spirit to every Christian to distinguish between good and evil, between truth and error, between spiritual life and spiritual death. 
It's a capacity that matures as we mature in our faith and in our knowledge of the Word of God. Um, it's that sense, it's that kind of that spidey sense, you know, where you where you say something's something is either right or something is wrong. I can't put my finger on it, but I just have this sense that something uh, is is maybe amiss in this case, and so we need to find out what that is. On this occasion, there there must have been something in their speech, in their conduct, their values, their manner of relating to others, uh, some deficit perhaps in their spiritual deception. Uh, spiritual deception, spiritual perception that that moved Paul to ask them this very pointed diagnostic question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul's clear and consistent teaching in his letters is that the Spirit is given exclusively to believers in Jesus Christ. In Paul's letter to the believers in Rome, for example, he states categorically, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And just a few verses later, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God or children of God. For some reason, Paul came to doubt that these guys were actually believers in Jesus Christ. Or he would never have asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So let's examine that interchange. Uh, first of all, the interchange itself. First question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Answer, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Next question, into what then were you baptized? And the answer, into John's baptism, into the baptism of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Well, let's think a little bit more about Paul's first question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? A literal translation from the Greek text would sound like this. The Spirit holy did you receive having believed? The Spirit holy did you receive having believed? Uh, Be glad for Greek translations into English because Greek sounds a lot like Yoda to me most of the time. Uh, This first question links the Holy Spirit with personal faith in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Again, Paul taught, as Peter also taught, and the apostles all taught, that believers in Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit when they believe. And that's reflected here in Paul's question. There are a few translations of the Bible uh, that I think mistakenly and unnecessarily render it this way. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Um, And you say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, that rendering could make a reader believe that there might be a delay between believing in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know that that sense is not at all present in the Greek text. That is not what the apostles intended the church to understand, or to believe, or to act on. When on the day of Pentecost, 
those Jews who had witnessed the signs and wonders that accompanied the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church asked in response to Peter's proclamation of the gospel, brothers, what shall we do? It wasn't on this occasion, what shall we do to be saved? It's what shall we do? That is, what's our appropriate response to what we're seeing and hearing today? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone, listen, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Every believer in Jesus. What's the, what promise? It's the promise that he just quoted. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's that promise. It is for all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. But those disciples of John the baptizer claimed, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. There is one thing that this statement cannot possibly mean. This cannot mean that they had never heard of the Spirit at all for two fundamental reasons. First, because they're Jews. And the entire Old Testament speaks of him. And secondly, because John the baptizer spoke of the Messiah baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. I suppose there's a third possibility. They just didn't pay attention in class. Went ahead and got baptized anyway. But those... Um, and notice Matthew 3.11. Um, John... or. Uh, John speaking, John the baptizer speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you, speaking of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John uh, chapter 1, beginning of verse 29, Gospel of John. The next day he, that is John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that is, God said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
So the meaning of Acts 19.2 must not be that they had never heard of the existence of the Holy Spirit, but rather that although they had heard John's prophecy, they had not for some reason subsequently heard that it had actually been fulfilled and that the Holy Spirit was now personally available to those who transferred their trust to Christ. Paul's second question to them was, into what then were you baptized? And their answer was, into John's baptism. So understand this morning that these disciples were not disciples of Jesus. We would say they were not Christians. If you're taking notes today, just write that down. They were not Christians, but rather they were disciples of his cousin, his forerunner, John the baptizer, the one who came to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, what was the nature of John's baptism? Go with me to the third chapter of Matthew's gospel, verses 1 to 3. In those days, John the baptizer came, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John came in fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Um, John was kind of a strange guy. I love in, in the Chosen series, Peter calls him, um, or Simon, I guess it's in Simon and the Chosen, Peter, uh, he calls him Creepy John. <laughs> and he was a different kind of guy. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, listen now, confessing their sins. So notice that John's baptism, this is what I want you to understand this morning, uh, one of the things I want you to understand, that John's baptism was a distinctive kind of baptism. It was a baptism of repentance in preparation to receive the coming of the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, who was about to appear on the scene and whose life and ministry overlapped that of John's. So Paul's reply to these men directly reflects that truth. He said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. So Paul proclaims the gospel to them. Paul built on these 12 men's experience of John's baptism and and John's pointed message in order to proclaim Christ to them. Two simple observations stand out to me at this moment in the story. First, that John's baptism had had its influence uh, and, and its intended effect in their lives. Having received the baptism of John that was preparatory to the coming of the Lord, uh, they were now predisposed to receiving the message of the one to whom John pointed forward, that is, Jesus, and to putting their faith in him. 
It was, it was an easy deal for them now to believe in Jesus. Second observation is that there's more to this story than Luke tells us. Because Paul surely would have proclaimed the gospel to them. He surely would have gone right back to the very beginning, to the very essence of the gospel. He would have told them the story of Jesus, of his life, his teaching, his suffering, his death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his glorification at the right hand of the Father, and of his sending the Holy Spirit. Paul would have urged them to put their faith in Christ and be baptized in his name, and and, and in doing that, to receive the three gifts of forgiveness of sin, of eternal life, and of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And they're converted, verses 5 and 6. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They had received John's baptism. They hadn't heard the gospel. They hadn't heard that the Holy Spirit was available. But now having heard the message of Jesus, they believe and are baptized in his name. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. I want to make clear so that you'll understand that Paul does not diminish in any way the meaning or the significance of John's baptism. That, that's not what he's doing here. Uh, and if anything, he was affirming it. Uh, he doesn't declare John's baptism to have been inadequate as far as it went. On the contrary, he, he affirms it for what it was, a baptism of repentance of sin and preparation to receive the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, that is, Jesus. John's baptism was one kind of baptism with one distinctive purpose. Baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus is another kind of baptism with another distinctive purpose. Uh, We shouldn't confuse the two. We shouldn't construe what is happening here as a rebaptism, as it is sometimes referred to today when someone believes in Jesus and they're baptized and and uh, for example, they they fall away and they they live a life that's not pleasing to the Lord for a period of time, and they and and they, they and then they come back and they're convicted of their sin and they come back and and uh, resume uh, an active relationship with Christ and with His church. And, and a lot of times, those people would say, "I'd like to be rebaptized." Uh, that's not what this is. Each was valid. Each John's baptism and Jesus' baptism were both valid and purposeful, but each communicated something quite different. Let me, see, let me point out a modern example. Uh, one might be the distinction between infant baptism and the baptism of a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not an equal example because the Bible does not at any point prescribe baptism for infants, and yet I'm going to guess there may be at least some here this morning uh, who were baptized as infants. Um, Without getting into the weeds on this subject, my simple point is this, that if you were baptized as an infant, you had no say in the matter. Um, What happened to you at that time was a function of your parents' faith, not your own faith. For you to be baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, now that you're a believer, should not be considered a re-baptism. 
because believer's baptism is a distinctively different kind of baptism. It tells a different story. Uh, When you receive believer's baptism, it's an indication that you uh, have exercised a volitional choice to express that you have come personally to faith in Jesus Christ that is uniquely your own, that you have died with Christ and been raised with him to newness of life, and that you are unashamedly identifying yourself with Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. Please notice with me now that there was no delay for these Ephesian disciples of John. There was no delay between their believing and being baptized. Luke says clearly in verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the sense that is given is that baptism followed immediately upon belief. And this is the New New Testament pattern for every believer. And you can check it out. You can test me in this in the pages of the New Testament. Whenever and wherever a man or woman believes in Jesus, we read that they are baptized immediately. Remember that the Lord Jesus himself defined a disciple in Matthew 28 as someone who has been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and who is learning to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Those two characteristics suggest that if you believed in Jesus Christ uh, but have not been baptized as a believer, then one thing is true of you, two things are true of you. One is that you're saved by virtue of your faith in him, to be sure. It's faith that saves us. But secondly, that you are disobedient by virtue either of your delay or your resistance to being baptized. See, baptism isn't a second step or a subsequent decision to faith in Christ. It's part and parcel of that decision. It's, it's what the Bible prescribes for the one who puts his or, faith, his or her faith in Jesus Christ. The New Testament knows nothing of, of an unbaptized disciple. Remember the words of the risen and glorified Jesus Christ to Saul on the road to Damascus when uh, he had that uh, amazing encounter. Jesus himself says to Paul, or Saul at the time, and now why do you wait? Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, I've frequently said, and I'll say again, that if you say to us uh, here at LifePoint, to, to me or to one of our staff members, I've believed in Jesus and now I want to be baptized, we're, we're going to make arrangements uh, to, to make that happen as soon as possible. Then notice what happens next for the Ephesian dozen following their baptisms. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now again, it's essential that we understand what's happening here. Because there's a great deal of confusion within the church. There's a great deal of uh, unbiblical teaching that arises from this one verse, verse 6. 
We saw earlier, as we examined Paul's first question to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, that receiving the Holy Spirit occurs simultaneously with personal faith in Christ. The clear teaching of the New Testament is that believers in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit at the moment that they believe. I also mentioned earlier that some translations mistakenly render Paul's question this way, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And to translate verse 2 that way is not only to distort um, the meaning of the original language, but it's also to allow the impression that a delay may exist between believing in Jesus and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. That you could believe in Jesus and a long time could go on before you received something that you end up referring to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit or having received the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in some Christian groups and denominations, that's exactly what is taught. And, and the story of the Ephesian dozen here is used as a proof text for their, what I believe to be inaccurate teaching, that there is a two-stage initiation to Christian faith. Now, I want to affirm immediately and, 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 and categorically, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we have a different view of what's happening here. That, that again, that two-stage initiation to Christian faith would sound like something like this. First, believing in Jesus and being baptized in water, and second, receiving what they would describe as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, accompanied on that occasion by supernatural phenomena of speaking in tongues and prophesying. But I want to say to you that 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 interpretation cannot apply here. And why is that? It's because it's quite clear that these disciples of John were not Christians when Paul met them. Uh, They had received John's baptism, but they had curiously neither heard the name of Jesus nor that the Holy Spirit had been given. They came to believe in Jesus only when Paul taught them the gospel message, and their baptism with water and the Spirit happened more or less simultaneously. And because that's true, the experience of those 12 disciples cannot possibly be regarded as providing a norm for a two-stage initiation. In order to do that, you would have to say they were already Christians. But now, at the ministry of Paul, they received the baptism. That's not at all what is happening here. Secondly, it's essential that we realize that the vast majority of those whose conversions we read about in the New Testament did not speak in tongues or prophesy when they were born again and received the Holy Spirit. Take, for example, Paul himself. There's no indication that he spoke in tongues or prophesied when he believed. There's no indication, for example, for the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story? And Philip asking him if he understood what he was reading as he was reading the Isaiah the prophet. And he believed and he was baptized in water. There's no indication of tongues or prophecy. Think of someone like Lydia in Philippi or the Philippian jailer. Uh, in any of those other conversions you can name, there is no indication of uh, 
tongues or prophecy or any other supernatural signs. What we do find is that the norm of Christian conversion includes a cluster of four things. Uh, and they are repentance, having a change of mind, that's, which is what repentance literally means, having a change of mind, a change of mind about God, a change of mind about myself, a change of mind about who Jesus is and what he requires, and then turning away from sin. That, that's all that's caught up in repentance. Secondly, uh, personal faith in Jesus Christ. The third element would be baptism in water as a public witness of their faith and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those four things are the norm that we see in the New Testament, those things, and, and they're not always in precise order, uh, but all four of those things cluster around every conversion in the New Testament. When Paul wrote his first letter to the church in Corinth, he said this in chapter 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And notice Paul's alternating use of the words one and all. There's one body. All the members of that body form one body. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. All were made to drink of one spirit. You see, there are no haves and have-nots in the body of Christ when it comes to the gift of the Spirit. Christ is not divided. And from a practical perspective, the teaching of a two-stage initiation to Christian faith, that is, belief in Jesus Christ and water baptism followed at some later date by a supernatural experience that's regarded as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, tends to create a very unhealthy two-class system within the church. It also often puts serious pressure on people to manifest spiritual gifts that they do not possess, such as pretending to speak in tongues when, in fact, God has not granted them that gift. And, and that happens. And I've known a lot of people who have felt that pressure and told me that story. Third, we need to understand what happened here in Ephesus with these 12 men and, and its significance for our understanding not only of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, what the Bible teaches about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, um, but also our understanding of the unfolding of the Christian mission, which is what the Acts of the Apostles is all about. And again, a few simple observations. After Pentecost, the New Testament never uses the word baptism to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the church or in the life of an individual believer. And you check it out. After Pentecost, the baptism of the Spirit is never used to describe individual Christian experience. The baptism of the Spirit instead is presented in the New Testament as a one-time-for-all-time event that took place at Pentecost. 
so that subsequently, as each one comes to personal faith in Christ, we each enter into the blessing of that one baptism. The Spirit was, the church was baptized with the Spirit once and for all at Pentecost. And this is why Paul is able to say that we were all baptized in one Spirit into one body. After Pentecost, there are only two moments when anyone's conversion to faith in Christ is represented as having been accompanied by the outward supernatural signs of speaking in tongues and prophesying. The first is in Acts 10. Remember that story? Uh, the Roman centurion at Caesarea and uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, an angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius and says, uh, there's, there's somebody down in Joppa that's going to bring you a message that's going to change your life, and you need to send for him, and, and he does. And Peter comes and preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household. Cornelius, remember, is a Roman. He's a Gentile. And uh, as Peter preached the gospel to them in, in Cornelius's home, uh, Cornelius and his entire household believed in Jesus. The second one is here in Acts 19 with these former disciples of John the Baptizer. One other possibility is in Acts 8 when Philip goes down to Samaria. He preaches the gospel. Great numbers of men and women believe in Jesus uh, and are baptized and they receive the gospel. You may recall the, the saying we saw earlier that Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with each other. And so when we looked at that passage together, uh, we made note that uh, when the church in Jerusalem received the news that the Samaritans had received the word of God that uh, at the, through the ministry of Paul, they sent Peter and John on, on a mission to confirm that that was true. It was hard for them to believe. And so it was when Peter and John arrived that the believers there received the Holy Spirit in some visibly observable way, although that we're not told uh, that it was either tongues or prophesying. It may have been one or both or more. But we need to ask what each of these three moments have in common. If there are only three occasions when this was true, uh, what do they mean? It's this. Each one... Uh, represents the addition of a new distinctive group of people to the body of Christ, to the church, the growing church, the expanding church. And in the case of the conversion of the Samaritans, uh, the gift of the Spirit, the receiving of the gospel and the gift of the Spirit ended in Christ that ancient division between Jews and Samaritans. And, and it was a perilous moment because the church, the fledgling church, could have divided along racial lines. And so Peter and John go down to Samaria, and they, they, they see very clearly that the Samaritans have received the Word of God and received the Holy Spirit. And in that case... Um, whatever observable confirmation that the Samaritans um, gave of having received the Spirit was given primarily, I think, on that occasion for the benefit of Peter and John so that they would know that God was including the Samaritans in the church. 
and that the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, would know that God was including, whether they liked it or not, the Samaritans in the church. In the case of Cornelius and his family, what Peter witnessed was God's inclusion of Gentiles into the church. Their reception of the Spirit was confirmed by speaking in tongues and worshiping God, but again, for whose benefit? And I I believe that those signs were again given for Peter's benefit, so that God was saying to Peter and to all the apostles and to the church in Jerusalem, do not call unclean what I have called clean. Don't, Don't call Gentiles unclean. Gentiles who have come to Christ, don't call them unclean, because I have called them clean. They are mine. They're now included. Whether you like it or not, they're now included in the church. So here in Acts 19, those now included are Jews who had received John's baptism of repentance and preparation, but had not previously heard of Jesus or the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for that matter, and therefore had neither been exposed to the message of the gospel. Remember that the prophecy of Joel that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost included the promise of God, that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh, not just Jewish flesh, not just Jerusalem flesh, but all flesh, Jews, Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. These three events in Samaria and Caesarea and Ephesus are not what we would call personal Pentecosts, but rather the blessings of the outpouring of the spirit on the day of Pentecost, catching up to each of these groups of people as it also catches up to each of us when we put our faith in Christ. We're all included in the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the basis of our faith in Christ. In verses 8 to 10, I want you to just see the word persistence. He, that is Paul, entered the synagogue at Ephesus and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." And here we see a now familiar pattern, we've seen it over and over again, of Paul reasoning and persuading Jews in the synagogue and and eventually opposition arising. And Paul describes that resistance with three phrases. He says, says some became, or rather Luke describes it, some became stubborn, that is, they hardened their hearts. Secondly, they persisted in unbelief, that is, they refused to consider what Paul had to say about Jesus, don't bother me with the facts. And third, they spoke evil of the way. That is, they they maligned Jesus and they maligned all who would believe in him. They maligned the church, the growing church in Ephesus. But in this occasion, instead of allowing the conflict to boil over into violence as it had in other places and as we will see it happen again, Paul went and found a hall to rent. And those who believed went with him. Uh, Just imagine a, a church meeting in a rented space, you know. Doesn't that kind of warm, that kind of warm your heart? Uh, so, so Paul continued teaching that. Oh, by the way, the, the, the landlord, his name is Tyrannus. It means tyrant. And, and, and so they were renting from a tyrant. Uh, some of you can relate to that in your rental experiences. 
So Paul continued teaching there, and and Luke tells us for two years with the effect that, quote, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I don't begin to believe that that means that every single resident of that huge, vast region uh, heard the message, but it means that there was a a widespread influence. Paul's strategy of, of evangelizing cities paid off here in Ephesus in a ministry that exponentially exceeded its footprint. So as you're sharing the gospel with people in your life, there are, there are at least three lessons to be learned here from these, from verses 8 to 10. And the first is that in many cases, uh, for us to see people put their faith in Christ may require a process that, that will involve progressive persuasion. And, and that phrase reasoning and persuading is, are words that we uh, should take to heart. So many of our evangelistic tools and programs assume that people will believe in Jesus on very little information. And uh, in most cases, uh, at least in my experience, that has not been true. Um, They're good as far as they go. And and in fact, some people come to Christ uh, uh, through the sharing of a tract, and I'm not uh, belittling that, but it's not the norm. Um, Rather, what, what we see happening most often uh, in the scriptures in, and in our own experiences that people uh, need reasons to believe. And it, it may take greater persistence and more prayer and more effort than we expect, but hang in there. You know, if you love those people, you're going to hang in there. So pray, reason with them, seek to persuade them, rinse and repeat. You know, and, until they come to faith in Christ. Second, and, and we all kind of understand this, that resistance and opposition will often arise. There will be people who will react negatively to our sharing of the gospel. And, and, and the fact is you may, may need to withdraw from a relationship when that occurs. And understand that it's okay for you to do that. Evangelism is primarily God's work, not ours. So if, if we've shared the gospel, if we've been faithful in that, and, and they just reject us or they become, they oppose us, they resist us. Um, that's God's work, not ours. We're not the Holy Spirit. Third, when you have the privilege of leading one person to faith in Christ, there may be an exponential effect. And how cool will it be that when we get to heaven, we'll discover that, that because we shared Christ with one person, uh, there's a vast crowd who are there. Uh, because of the exponential influence of the gospel through one person. Um, that'll be pretty cool. So be faithful, be persistent in reaching even one with the gospel. Well, let me land this plane. A few conclusions. First of all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you received the Holy Spirit when you believed. And in fact, I think we can say with great confidence that you would not have come to Christ had you not received the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So long before you understood that Christ was knocking on your door, the Holy Spirit was at work in you um, and drawing you to Jesus. But here's a question. Have you personally then been baptized in water as a public expression of your faith and in obedience to the command given by Jesus? Is that true of you? Uh, Second question, are are you depending on having previously been baptized uh, at some time for your salvation? 
Are you depending on that act, on that water baptism, on that ritual for your salvation? Or have you personally, in fact, transferred your faith to Jesus Christ away from whatever, whatever you were trusting in before, even religion? Have you transferred it to Jesus Christ and alone and what he accomplished for you at the cross? That's where our faith rests. And, and that's authentic Christianity. Um, and the danger of, of trusting in your baptism alone is that uh, baptism will never save you. It's only faith in Christ that will result in your salvation. There's salvation in no one and nothing else but Jesus. And so final question is this. Who, who needs you to persist in speaking the message of the gospel to them? Reasoning, persuading, so that one day it may be that they will believe and be saved. Um, Will you be persistent in that so that someone might come to know Christ? Well, profound passage. I hope it's been helpful to you. Let's bow in prayer together. Lord, thank you for your word. It, It always speaks into our hearts and into our minds. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these things seriously, that we would apply our minds to these things and our hearts as well, that you would be honored in the decisions that we make and in the ways that we conduct our lives and our ministries. Lord, we love you. We want to be effective in your kingdom. And so keep teaching us, we pray, and help us to keep obeying as you lead us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.